Amen. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians tonight. Uh, we have uh, we are just four weeks in to our uh, Bible study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we have had a great time so far. And if you haven't been with us for these uh, opening uh, studies, you're, you're not too far behind. I think we'll have a great uh, time uh, uh, no matter where we're coming from uh, this evening. Um, in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 1, uh, Paul introduced to us what will be an underlying theme and what has been and will continue to be an underlying theme in this book. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians, just look at chapter 1. And if you haven't already circled or underlined or highlighted verse 18, uh, this is really an anchor verse for the book. It's it's really an anchor verse for the whole Bible. But 1 Corinthians 18 really sets the tone and the pace for what we're going to talk about tonight and and what we will continue to talk about as we study this book. Uh, But just to remind you, if you weren't with us for that lesson, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Apostle Paul says this uh, about his message, the message that he was preaching, the message of Jesus, the message of Jesus on the cross particularly. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are, uh, who are not believing and those that are suffering from the consequences of not believing, those that are falling away and have already fallen away and are continuing to uh, fall away or drift away. Uh, it's foolishness. Those that refuse to listen to it and those that don't believe it or buy into it, it, it sounds like nonsense. It sounds like it's just, it, it's all, uh, uh, you know, it, it's all not worth listening to and it's not worth uh, trusting in. He says, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to us who have believed, to us who are being saved, that, that means that we're constantly being changed by the message. It doesn't mean that we're saved every day or saved every time we hear it, but it means that once God starts that work, that it's always doing a new and fresh and progressive work inside of our hearts. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God, or we are experiencing the power of God. And, and I think Paul, I think it's important that we notice he uses the phrase being saved because it's important tonight that we remember that every day God is trying to grow us and trying to move us forward. And if for a moment we take our eyes off of him, and this is going to be a theme tonight in, in our message, if for a moment we let our guard down, if for a moment we think, ah, you know, I, I don't need to be focused on Jesus today or I don't need to study, I don't need to pray, I don't need to be devoted. If for a moment we let our guard down, uh, we will face the consequences and face the, the nature of our flesh, of our sin. Uh, we'll try to pull us back under and pull us away from where God is taking us, that we face this tension. Uh, but as we are under the power of the cross and as we are studying and focusing on Jesus, we are constantly being renewed. Uh, by his saving work. So if you remember back in chapter one, and if you read on through that passage, Paul continues to use that contrasting language, uh, foolish versus wise, weak versus strong. Uh, and, And he's trying to make a point that there's a distinctiveness between our nature and God's nature. And from the outside looking in, it seems as if the way God's doing things and what God wants to do in us is foolishness. And why would anybody listen to that? And why would anybody follow those ideals or believe those things? But once you're on the inside, you realize that the reason why you thought it was foolishness is because you us and God are so different that through our eyes and in our flesh, we don't recognize just how superior he is and how right he is compared to how wrong we are and how naturally 
towards the other way we are. Uh, so what he wants to set the, the tone for here and what he set the tone for here right off the bat is there is a distinctiveness. There is a wide difference between God and everyone else. And everyone else includes you and me. And I know you want to think, well, I'm the, I'm the exception, right? I know there, there's those people. I mean, they're way far off. And then there's me. And yeah, I've got some flaws, but I'm closer than they are. But Paul wants to make it clear off the bat here that all of us, uh, all of us share that flaw uh, in our sin. All of us share that flaw. All of us are equally fallen, that there is a wide difference, a great chasm between God and everyone else. And, and he wants us to to, uh, to be aware of that, and he makes this distinction between God and, and everyone else. Now, we'll talk about this later, but the notion in us that wants to compare ourselves and contrast ourselves with each other is a distracting mechanism that ultimately prevents us from addressing the real issue that's inside of us. So let us not shirk that or, or, or push back against that. Well, I don't know about that. Is it really God and everyone else? Or is there not varying degrees uh, of, uh, of people that are far from God or closer than others? Uh, Paul wants to make it clear that there is a way that is, that it, that it is God's way. And, and apart from his saving power, all of us thinks that it's uh, foolish. The real issue, as Paul identifies, is that we naturally, that means by nature, miss what God is doing. None of us, not one of us, are leaning towards God naturally. We all lean the wrong way. If you put a level or a plumb line up against our lives, all of us naturally, uh, not through the work of God or uh, under the power of God, but naturally we're all out of level. Naturally we're all leaning the wrong way. Now everybody here tonight probably, you know, uses the phrase or has you heard the phrase, you know, we lean certain ways politically or socially, economically. We lean certain ways morally. Well, all of us lean the wrong way when it comes to the most important matter, which is where our heart is aligned or where our heart is, is often focused on. But there is a hope for us. And, and 1 Corinthians is all about that hope. The hope is the gospel. And Paul talked to us about in chapter one and chapter two that only the crucified Jesus has the power to open our eyes. Only Jesus, only Jesus on his cross has the power to open our eyes. Apart from Jesus and apart from his work on the cross, we will all stay blind. We may become religious and try to become better than others or work, work towards God in our own ways. But if not for Jesus and his cross, we're all blind to these important realities how wrong we are and what salvation is and how we actually get saved. That it takes the work of Jesus to open our eyes to our sin and to salvation, that it's a work of God alone. Now, this is a consistent message of the Bible. Uh, we read this, I think, uh, the other night, but, for, but Isaiah the prophet says this. This is so powerful. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So this is a consistent theme in the Bible. There is a great chasm between us and God, that God's ways are higher is higher and his thoughts are greater. Now, not only is this true in how God compares to us, but it's also uh, true in how he went about to save us. God in flesh sacrificed for those who failed him. Completely a preposterous idea. 
and the Jews never considered that this is how God would save them. The Jews thought God would never do that. That's beneath him. God wouldn't become one of us to die for us. That's something we've got to do to earn our salvation. Of course, the Gentiles laughed at the idea that one of the gods, as they believed in many, the Gentiles laughed at the idea that a God would do something for the benefit of humans. They believed it was on us, on them. But that is not the gospel. The gospel, and, and this is why it's called good news. The gospel is that he became one of us. He died for us so that he might save us because we are at his mercy. Now, as confounding as this was to all that heard it, the spirit of God opens hearts as it is preached because, well, Jesus' death and resurrection ushered in an age of redemption to this world. And I want you to think about this. Had Jesus just been another man, he would have been crucified and never heard of, never heard from again. You know how many people were crucified in the first century by Rome? Hundreds of thousands of Jews were crucified. Two of them right beside Jesus, right? That was an everyday occurrence. Hundreds of thousands of people were crucified. Yet we remember Jesus because he was more than just a man. He was God in flesh. And his death sent a ripple effect throughout the cosmos, as in the unseen parts of creation. His death is remembered because it combated the power of sin and death, as in it went to work against the forces that were against us. His death combated the power of sin and death and overturned the curse on humanity. Again, the proof that this actually happened is that Jesus rose back to life three days after his death and that a great movement rose up after his resurrection of people filled with the spirit of his resurrection claiming that his death meant something for their souls and that his resurrection has changed something in their hearts. Listen, if he was just a man, he would have died and been burned. He wouldn't even been buried. He would have been thrown into a valley to burn. But because he was more than a man, because he was buried and rose again, and because his spirit rushed on this earth after his resurrection, we have confidence he was God on a cross, paying for our sins, forgiving our sins, and he brought humanity back to God. See, from the outside looking in, the idea that, that a man on a cross saved people, saved people and brought them back to God, it sounds crazy. That's why Paul says it's a stumbling block, it's foolishness. But Paul says once you're on the inside and when you understand what God did through that cross, you understand it's not foolish, it's the power of God. And not only do you understand it, but you are experiencing it. Jesus reconciled us back to God. We as a species were cast out when Adam sinned. But when Jesus, the second Adam and the better Adam, died for Adam's sin and died for the sin of Adam's children, he reconciled us back to God. And let me explain what that means. In Adam, we were all banished. But in Jesus, we were all brought back in. In Adam, remember the scene in Eden? The angels blocked people from the presence of God. But in Christ, the gates are open and the throne room is accessible. He doesn't bring you there against your will. He opens the door and he says to us and he shouts to us, he proclaims to us, I am the way, come to the Father. You have been reconciled through my work. In Adam, we were banished, 
but in Christ we are brought back. And that's why this verse from Hebrews is so important. Maybe you've quoted this before, but not realize how important it is. Hebrews 4, 6, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What is our confidence? Jesus died for our sins. It sounds foolish to those that have never experienced it. But when you have come under the blood of Jesus and you have experienced the power of his resurrection, you have the confidence to come into the presence of God. His grace beckons you. If Jesus' death hadn't accomplish anything for us or anything, any of this, then he would have stayed dead and we would never heard about him again. But he paid for our sins and he also defeated death. He rose again in his resurrection. We have a promise and from his resurrection, we have the power of God, the presence of God moving and working in our world to reach us. And it's through the preaching of Jesus, the proclamation of what Jesus did, that our eyes are open, our ears hear, and our hearts awaken to God. Now, Paul came to the Corinthians and said, I know this stuff sounds naturally, sounds crazy naturally, but through the Spirit of God, this is your salvation. So Paul told them, I came to you preaching the message from God's word, showing you Christ from every page, because this is where God's power is found. So then in chapter two, he explains to us that there is a nature working against all of us. There's a nature that's working against us that resists what God has done for us. And even after we're saved, this nature persists so that we won't grow in Christ. That even as Christians, this nature is working against us so that we won't grow and progress and, and move forward. Even as Christians, and that's what chapter 2 was about, and this is bridging us into chapter 3. We must be aware and be on guard of our fleshly nature that rejects the things of God. Look at verse number 14 of chapter 2, and this will lead us into chapter 3. As Paul is contrasting the natural versus the spiritual. The natural man or the natural nature does not receive the things of the Spirit of the God, for they are foolish to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things or hears them and processes them, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. And, and that means that we have already been saved through the work of Jesus and we've been given this ability uh, to, to pr process God's word and hear God's word and, and follow God's word. For who, he quotes an Old Testament passage, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? As in, how can God change us unless he has done something inside of us? And, and, and Paul says, well, that's the secret of Christianity. We have the mind of Christ. So how can God actually change the heart of a person, change the heart of a man or a woman that's sinful, that's fallen? Jesus has reconciled us back to God and he has given us the gift of his spirit to work against that nature, that fleshly nature that pulls us the wrong way. So Paul's appeal is that we might hear God's word with an openness and an eagerness for Christ to, to be manifested to us, that he might move into our lives in a greater capacity and make us more like him. So that's Paul's appeal, that we might would see Jesus through the word of God as we read it and study it and hear it, and we might become more like him. Uh, we don't open the Bible seeking mere advice. This is not just a helpful book. This is not just a, a book that we look to uh, to be confirmed to what we already believe. 
A lot of times we open the Bible and we're just trying to see, we're trying to bring our own ideas in. We talked about this last week. We bring our ideas in and we try to see if a verse confirms what we already believe. That's not how we open the Bible. That's not how we handle the Bible. We come to the Bible confessing our dire strait apart from Jesus. We confess that we need him to save us, open our eyes and purify us from all the wrong ways and all the wrong ideas. We come to him as a blank slate ready for him to change us and guide us and show us what is the right way to live. And we have this confidence that every page and every, every passage, every page reveals promises about Jesus, problems that may be within us and a pathway to bear his cross. Every passage in the Bible, every page of the Bible reveals to you a promise about Jesus, who Jesus is and why you need him to save you and what he's done to save you. It may reveal a problem you've got in your life and how Jesus alone is what's gonna solve that problem. And it reveals to you how through the way of the cross, through the pathway that Jesus has made, uh, you can overcome, you can serve the Lord. This is not how a lot of people read their Bibles. <laughs> a lot of people uh, read their Bibles with an agenda. A lot of preachers preach the Bible with an agenda that is contrary to God's or adjacent to God's. Uh, but we naturally, we're inclined to make it about ourselves or make it about how we've already saw the world in our flawed nature. But we as Christians understand that if not for Jesus transforming us, we're, hope, we're hopeless, we're without any direction. So we need to come to God's word wanting him to be the entire sense of direction. You know, even as Christians, we have a tendency to sanitize and apologize for our sin. And we have a tendency to say, well, yeah, I know that thing about me. Maybe you've said this before and, and this might hurt. Well, that's just how I am, you know, and, and I, that's just how it's going to be. That's how my mom was, my dad was, my grandmother was. That's how we all, we all been this way and there's no fixing it even though the Bible says, yes, there is fixing it. Yes, there is a way out, right? Maybe you've, you've sanitized your own sin before. You've apologized for your own sin before, or you've got some beliefs that you know the Bible good and well disagrees with or rejects, but you kind of protect those beliefs because you don't want to change, right? Paul says, if you want to be spiritually minded, if you want to grow in the spirit, you've got to allow this natural mind to be purged and to be purified, of those fleshly, of those sinful ideals. Even as Christians, we often look to God's word for affirmation, not awakening. And do you understand what that means? That when we open the Bible, we often look for something just to confirm what we already believe, not awaken us to something we would not have heard from anywhere else. Do you look at the Bible as if it's literally speaking to you the truth of God, the spiritual word of God? Do you believe that there's a, there's a truth in the word of God that you can't get anywhere else? And there is something that you need in your heart from God's word that you can't get in that, that, that has not already been given by anything of this world, right? So you need not affirmation, you, you need awakening. We don't need confirmation, we need conviction so that we might see the difference between nat natural and, and spiritual, fleshly and spiritual. So this is the issue that Paul was having with the Corinthians, and that's why he's recapping all of this uh, that should have been basic knowledge to them. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, and you'll hear him say that as much. I, brethren, could not speak to you as, as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, he's not saying they were lost, even though there are people in the church that aren't saved. He's saying... I could not speak to you as people that were deeply rooted spiritually people. I had to come to you as people who were still carnal. Even though you've been saved, you're still a babe in Christ, but you're still looking at the world through that sinful, natural, fleshly 
filter in that, that nature that, you all, that we all are born with. He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. So what we, what we just recapped, the work of the gospel, the power of the cross, the work that Jesus does. Paul had to go through all that in chapter 1 and 2, recapping what he already preached to them and spent 18 months getting them, uh, you know, rooted in. He said, I had to recap all that stuff because clearly you guys haven't addressed this nagging issue of your sinful nature that continues to try to pull you back under, even though the Spirit of God's trying to raise you up. So Paul is having to repeat and reiterate basic premises, basic teachings of the gospel, uh, because he was unable to move on to deeper things, including he's reminding them how to read God's word and and how they should hear God's word being preached. So I want to do a quick breakdown of the categories that Paul has identified here. He, uh, King James uses the word carnal. Uh, other translations may use the word worldly. Uh, newer translations use the word fleshly, uh, but the Greek word, it, it can be translated any of those ways. But there's a difference. Notice there's a distinction here in verse one, spiritual versus carnal, or we'll, we'll, we'll use the word spiritual versus fleshly. And in other places in the New Testament, the word flesh is used. Um, there, there's this, this, the word that's translated as flesh Flesh or carnal uh, or worldly, it, it's a tricky word. It's the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, um, which means worldly substance. I, I can remember a teacher of mine, when he would say that word, he would always rub his hands together like this because he wanted us to know that the word flesh means uh, not just our skin, but the way, the way we see things and the way it feels to us and the way we process it as fleshly, as creatures who are confound to and limited by this world. Um, When the Bible talks about the word flesh or carnal, it's referring to that seat of the pants nature, that gut uh, feeling that drives us all. Um, Now, this isn't the notion that all material things are bad. Let me make that very clear. Because in Genesis 1, when God made the earth and the things in the earth, he said it was good, right? He says, hey, I, I created this and he said it was good and he blessed it. Uh, it God, the, the nature, the material things of the world, it's not that they're bad in and of themselves. It's the fallen, the effects of the fall that's taken over everything, uh, corrupting how we see things and corrupting how we feel about what's right and what's wrong and often flipping the way we should see things. Um, this is why we should always be on guard with how we feel about something. Uh, because often the way we feel is contrary uh, to what is true and, and what is right and what is best for us. Uh, what we, what is, this is what it's talking about, flesh or carnal nature. A mind of flesh is rooted and motivated by what feels right, what seems right, what we process as being the way it, it must B, this is why we can't base truth on what feels right. Uh, It's also why you can't base your faith on how you feel. Now, those are opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're rooted in the same flaw, the same fleshly mind. If you base truth on feelings, then everyone has a different truth. If everybody feels their way to truth, then everybody has a different thing they think is true. But on the same notion, on the same token, if we base our faith on how we feel, nobody will consistently and confidently walk with God. So we can't allow this fleshly nature to drive us and dominate us. Because our flesh, our sinful nature is either going to corrupt us or condemn us or both. Romans 8, 6 says this. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, as in the goal that your mind, your flesh, your simple nature has for you is to destroy you, is to drag you down, is to drain you of the spirit of the power of God. To be spirit, to be fleshly minded, carnally minded is death, as in it's a dead end street. It's a dead end road. There's no spiritual growth down that avenue. The contrast to that, if our mind is through the spirit and is spiritually minded and rooted, we have life as in eternal, abundant, spiritual life, and we have peace. So we're not basing things on how we feel. We're not, you know, our morals, our truth is not based on how we feel. And also our faith is not based on how we feel. You wake up one day and you feel really close to God. The next day you don't feel close to God. It's not based on how you feel. It's based on what Jesus has done and his promise and his spirit's presence in your life. And that's where our peace is is found. Paul is not talking to lost people here. He's talking to Christians so that we need to be aware of our fleshly carnal tendencies. From the sins we'll commit to the anxiety we'll be conquered by, we can have a spiritual mind if we are growing in Christ. Most likely, if we are professing Christians still dominated by a fleshly mind, it reveals that we're not resting in Jesus. And that was the Corinthian problem. Paul is going to prove that with an example of what was going on in Corinth, verse three and four. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy and strife and divisions among you. So what is Paul's proof? What is the thing he points to in, that reveals to them that this church is still fleshly, carnally minded? Notice he doesn't point out some great immorality, even though there were plenty of those. Chapter five and six are coming, just hang on. But what is his example for what reveals their fleshliness this tension in the midst this jealousy this animosity these divisions and now remember back in chapter one he introduced us to these divisions and the divisions were about who they were going to follow who was the better preacher who was the better teacher whose teaching was the more true some says i'm of paul and others says i'm of apollos are you not carnal and he explained back in chapter one why are you trying to divide us we're working for the same team now, we talked about this, but he brings it up again here, and he tells us something important, and this tells us something important about how the Bible is structured. Anytime you read a book of the Bible and you see a topic introduced, and then there's a couple chapters where some other things are talked about, but then that very topic comes back up a few chapters later, that reveals to you that everything in between those two topics that are the same has a connecting, is meant to be in the same conversation. Uh, so chapter one brings this up, chapter three brings it back up, so everything in between is kind of feeding off that same message. Um, So back in chapter one, we heard about the division in the church and how the church was divided over which teacher they were following, uh, which one they're going to lift up the most and and celebrate the most. Uh, Paul comes back to that after addressing the way of the cross, which confounds and corrects our nature and how in Christ that we find a way out of our fleshly nature. And and he brings up something that we've talked about before, but I want to bring it up again tonight because it's in in the text. He brings up what is the most basic expression of our fleshly nature or what is the most anti-spiritual expression that we can have as people. Now that you may disagree with this, but again, I'm just presenting what the word says. That Paul says the most basic expression of our fleshly nature, that if you wanna know that what in you reveals your flesh at work the most or the, the most dangerous thing about your flesh, Paul says it's this tendency towards jealousy, animosity, this us versus them competitiveness that we have as humans, 
where we're always trying to find somebody to point out and, and say, when you compare ourselves to, Paul tells the Corinthians that their immaturity is being expressed by and is rooted in this jealousy and this animosity they have against each other and towards each other. Now, I cannot overstate this, but this is such a core issue. And I think, I think this is the most primal expression of our sinful nature, that if you scrape away all the stuff that we often put on top of it, this is the most revealing thing about our brokenness and about our sinfulness. Our notion to be jealous and spiteful and hateful and antagonistic reveals that shared fallenness in all of us. And ultimately, it comes from a place, we talked about this a lot, but it comes from that thing in all of us that thinks we have to justify ourselves. It comes from that self-righteous tendency in all of us. And it's so important, and this is so subtle in all of us. You may think, I don't deal with that. It's so subtle, it's in every one of us. We think we're all unique and we think we all sin differently, but we're all fallen. And this is perhaps our, the, the, the most core example. This is perhaps the reactor core of our sinful nature. Uh, this is the thing in us that's always trying to find somebody or somebodies to knock down and to beat down and to keep down so that we might can build ourselves up on their grave. You know, the Bible actually talks about this back in chapter four of Genesis, right after the fall, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is trying to justify himself before God and gets angry when God accepts his brother Abel, who brings a lamb, not his own works. So right there in Genesis four, right after the fall, ground zero of sinful nature, that is what is at work in all of us, trying to present ourselves to God and that jealous nature, that spiteful nature, that animosity in us that often looks at someone else and says, what about them? And how can I get ahead of them? And how can I make myself look better than them? This is why when someone confronts you about your sin, the first thing you do and the first thing I do is start thinking about somebody who sins worse than me or you. This is why we always want to build a case for what not only we're right about, but what others are wrong about. Because we always feel like we got to have that contrasting example. We always got to be able to point to somebody that's doing it worse than us. So as if God needs that to make us look better. <laughs> and, and this is the worst thing about church culture. The very place that should remind us and always remind us and always keep us grounded in what it means to be a Christian, we should, be, we should remember we're saved in Christ alone, right? We all need grace equally, yet we still fall for this, don't we? That jealousy and that animosity and that antagonistic nature that gets inside of us and causes us to be against each other and try to pit each other against each other. We're saved by the grace of God alone, all of us need the same grace. Everybody needs grace equally. Nobody, nobody is justified by anything we bring to the table. That you don't need to bring anything to God to prove yourself because you cannot prove yourself. You are fallen. You are sinful. Everybody is in the same category as you. You need Jesus. We all, I need Jesus. You see, Paul is trying to wire the Corinthian church to be a healthy and positive church environment. Paul gives us a good word about maintaining a healthy church culture, verses five through nine. 
He says, who then is Paul or who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave each to one. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. He says, we're just messengers. You are trying to say that I preach better than Apollos and Apollos preaches better than me and trying to make it an us versus them and a me versus him. That's not what this is about. I served you, Apollos served you, but God is the one that did the work. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor who he waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his reward according to his labor. For we are God's fellow laborers, fellow workers. For you are God's field, you are God's building. So he brings it back to them before he closes on talking about how we serve God. Excuse me, how we serve God. Paul uses this as an opportunity to center, around, center us around the right understanding about those who minister to us, the infrastructure of church leadership and teaching. Now, I won't go too deep into this because I am one of these. I am a preacher. I am a pastor. But the church often gets so distracted, and some pastors play into it, some preachers play into it, and if they do, they're dangerous. The church often gets so distracted uh, by trying to uh, build up individuals or build up certain, uh, you know, certain people that have certain beliefs or certain people that translate the Bible or interpret the Bible in a certain way. And it becomes this, well, I'm following him and I'm following them. And wow, did you hear that sermon? And wow, did you, you know, have you heard them and how they preach? And have you seen what that church is doing? Have you heard about what their church is doing? And it becomes this competitive thing. And it becomes this very anti-spiritual thing. God has placed in his church those that have been called and those that aspire to serve faithfully. Uh, every sermon may not blow your mind. Every message may not send chills down your spine, but everyone who holds the word of God with fear and trembling, faithfully teaching and preaching the word to reach the people for the good of the gospel and for the good of the kingdom. Uh, again, not every sermon is going to make you think, wow, what a revelation. Our flesh might make us tune out or even roll our eyes, but Let's agree that when we gather around God's word, if it's being delivered in humility, let's receive it in humility. Because no matter how spectacularly it is preached, it's just like with the meals that you eat. Not every meal is Thanksgiving. Not every meal is that holiday meal. And not every meal is that weekend treat. But every meal you eat keeps you alive. And what Paul is trying to prevent the Corinthian church from falling into is they were trying to create these celebrities and trying to create these preachers and people that were better than the others and trying to create this culture that was uh, really unhealthy. And Paul says, listen, I want y'all to focus on what is God speaking to you through his word, no matter the messenger, what is God's word revealing to you through the mouthpiece that God has put in front of you so that you might be healthy. Paul says, I want you to focus on your spiritual vitality because when you go to the doctor and you get a checkup, they don't, ask you, they don't ask you how good the food you ate was or how great the meal was. They ask you, what have you been eating? And they tell you what it's been doing to your body. And if you've been eating bad stuff, even if it was the, most great, the greatest prepared meal in the world and it was on a, you know, a spectacular uh, you know, uh, uh, dinner show, if it wasn't good for you, it wasn't good for you. What matters is how healthy are you spiritually? How are you receiving the word that God is putting in front of you and what are you doing with it? And that's what we're going to close our time together talking about. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another one builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now, he's not, refer not only referring to how the preachers that follow him would build on it, but how each of us receive the word and respond to it. 
Christ is our one foundation. We must build upon him and grow in our walk. He brings the heat here by, by saying it's not just helpful to our earthly lives for us to grow, but our eternal lives will reflect how we live out our faith here on earth. So the onus is on us. We have a responsibility to serve God, to rise up past all this immaturity and silly nonsense that the flesh distracts us with and make a difference in the world for Jesus. But we will never make a difference in the world for Jesus until he's made a difference in our hearts. Makes sense, right? We will never make a difference in the world for Jesus until he's made a difference in our hearts. Listen to verse 11 through 15 in closing. No, for no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the basis. That's how we're saved. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the, the day that we're all brought into heaven. The day will declare it or manifest it, reveal it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now, there's a whole other sermon here, but I want to close it under the confines of what we've been talking about tonight. There are numerous biblical texts that speak of the rewards for obedience and differing degrees of glory based on the faithfulness we give to God in this life. Jesus often used the phrase, great is your reward in heaven. When, when he said to them, I know you're being persecuted, but there's reward for you in heaven if you are faithful in the tough time that you're facing. Think about the kingdom parables he told, how he gave a clear connection between how we serve God here and how we will enjoy God there. Most famously, the parable of the talents. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I think Jesus is intentionally vague here. He doesn't go into detail about what this looks like. He never says, hey, this is what heaven is like. This is what eternity is like. He just gives these parables that kind of paint a vague picture. I think he wants us to pursue him sincerely. And when we come to the place serving him faithfully out of purity and passion, our deeds will declare and demonstrate our salvation out of an overflow of our gratitude and genuine joy. This is not something that can be faked. This comes from a genuine joy and a genuine gratitude for what God has done in us. And that only comes from a spiritual heart, a spiritual mind that is embracing what Jesus has done for us and that is resting in what he's done for us and that is aware that everything is on the line. Our motivation is to glorify Jesus, honor him on earth, and understand that in heaven there is a reward for how we serve God. The passage makes it clear, though, that there's going to be a different, it's going to be different for everyone who stands before the Lord as a saved person, nonetheless. Think about some of the analogies in the Bible for what honors and dishonors the Lord. It's often in the language of sacrifices how there's those sacrifices that produce a sweet smell to God and there's so, those sacrifices or there's those fires that just burn everything up and leaves nothing but a husk, nothing but the smell of smoke. This is what, this is the picture that Paul paints. 
our lives will be tried by fire. And either there will be a sweet savor that remains over us, or there will be smoke. Saved as though one pulled out of the fire. Charcoal still on our garments. We ought to think soberly about this definite moment. It's in every one of our futures. That's why it matters the mindset we have every day. That's why it matters. Are we living by the flesh? Are we living by the spirit? Is the power of God changing us? Is it making us more like Christ? Is it making a difference in us so that we can make a difference for him? Now, his grace will be sufficient for us on that day. Just as we enter by his grace, we'll be saved and remain by his grace. Yet our earthly lives will be reflected in our eternal lives. So let's make the most of it. Intentionally leaving this off in a little bit of, a t- a little bit of, a, of, a, of an open book because we must consider, are we making the most of what Jesus did for us and what he has made available to us? And let's remember that our place in the church, our place as Christians, it's not something that we just casually observe, but we are one of sacred participants in his body. And that's what Paul was trying to get out of the Corinthians. So much is on the line. Most of all, greatest of all, our eternal standing and experience. Thank God for these opportunities to hear his word and make a decision to listen, respond, and apply so that we might honor him with our lives until the day reveals it all. Sooner or later, we will give an account for the lives we've lived and eternity will tell the story. How we're living now will be reflected in the next life. The question is, if Christ is your foundation, that means you're you're saved. You've You've been given this potential. You've been given this starting point. How are you building on that foundation? Are you filled with his spirit or are you still walking in the flesh? We'll get into more of this in the weeks to come, but consider soberly and sincerely, how are you responding to the work that Jesus has done for you? Are you like the Corinthians, spiritually saved, but still carnal, still babes in Christ? Are you growing in and on that foundation? Because sooner or later, the day will reveal it. And that will be the start of our eternal lives. And there'll be no looking back. Let's make the most of this night and let's let God use this message to change our hearts and move us forward as we continue to seek him and savor him with all that we have and all that we are. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that your word does not, not beat around the bush. It gets right to the heart of the matter. It comes to us and it confronts us. And sometimes it brings us out of the pit of dismay. And other times it humbles us. Lord, tonight, I think we've got a little bit of both. We've been reminded that Jesus saves us and that we don't have to bring anything to you that we couldn't bring anything to you if we wanted to. But thank you that you don't just save us and say good luck, but you make it clear that there is an eternity and there is going to be a reflection of how we live here and what we experience there. Lord, I pray that you would remind us all of what is available to us and you would make us all aware 
of our immaturity, of our fleshly nature, and you would convict us and confront us of what we might be leaving on the table. Fill us with your spirit, change us by your spirit, and prepare us for the day so that we might be prepared for eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.